Thanks for checking out this podcast presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. If you're looking for tickets for an upcoming game or event at TCF Bank Stadium, U.S. Bank Stadium, or XL Energy Center, visit TicketKingOnline.com or the link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. Ticket King has all your tickets for Minnesota football, plus all the concerts, all the theaters, and at all venues. Call 612-341-4141 or visit TicketKingOnline.com. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a beautiful game. Now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. Play ball. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Uh, the World Series is on our radio station tonight, and I'm actually—I mean, I'm, I go back and I am—I grew. Every, I feel like everyone says this about themselves. Like I grew up watching the Cubs on WGN, or I grew up this or that. My dad was born just—I uh, don't know, like 20 miles outside Chicago, and so we used to go and hang out at Wrigley Field with my grandma who went to Cubs games the first year of Wrigley Field way back in the, whenever, 1920s, I guess? When was Wrigley Field uh, built? Like the 20s, I think. This is before I was born. I, yeah. I don't remember. So like, I grew up, and the Cubs were always the, the secondary team next to the Twins, mm-hmm. and I actually did shed some tears on my couch on okay. Saturday night. I welled up when the Cubs clinched their first pennant since 1945, and I am... Absolutely comfortable admitting that. See, I heard you guys talking about that on the radio, and I was actually watching the game with our new friend Matthew Collar and his wife, and it was a cool moment. And you know what? One thing I will say, uh, just a quick moment of appreciation for Joe Buck, the way he handled the call. The Cubs have won the pennant. Shh. Let the crowd tell the story. Let the team tell the story. I thought that was a fantastic way to handle that. Um, the emotion of the moment, but I, I got to tell you, that thought didn't even cross my mind to get misty eyed in it. I, I guess my background is a little bit different. One, my dad didn't grow up a Cubs fan, and two, I'm actually a robot programmed <laughs> to act like a human, and so those are the two things that maybe prevented me from from crying or even really thinking about that as a possibility. The last time I can think about, you know, really being emotional in sports was the 2004 Red Sox World Series. Oh, yeah. My dad grew up a Red Sox fan. Kind of so, the same thing. Yeah, same, exact same principle. So I know I know where you're coming from. But I heard you guys talking. We'll get back to baseball in a quick second. Well, this is baseball. Kind no, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean this tangent here. We were in spring training two years ago, and it was you and Judd and myself. We were hanging out at uh, the local sports bar watching the KG return game. Oh, Shoeless Joe is in Fort Myers. That's right. Um and I remember watching that return and thinking, like, okay, this is cool. And, man, Timberwolves fans, man, this must be a really cool moment for them. But being, you know, a sort of that robot, I didn't think much personally of the gravity of that moment. And I heard you guys talking about it, how that was a really emotional moment for you. That, that was just, you know, whatever happens to the yeah. way, whatever happens, um, this is for Timberwolves fans. I, I guess it just it all how you experience sports you know it's, if it's important to you or if it's important to someone who's close to you those things can be really powerful for me cubs was not 
clinching the NL pennant. I can see how it only would be for a long Cubs fan or people who have Cubs fans in their family. Yeah, I, it was um, oh, two things real quick. Not to sorry to interrupt you there. Number one, I'm stopping our Facebook live video because everyone's saying it's choppy. We th- it was choppy on our screen. We didn't know if it was choppy to the outside, so it is choppy. So for the like podcast it. listeners, we'll give it another try on Facebook Live. We're trying out some new. What will eventually be awesome software that we can use. Yeah, but, for sure. Um, on your uh, your Red Sox and Cubs and or KG nostalgia point. Yeah, I like I had a phone call conversation with my dad, who's now seventy. What's the math on that? Like seventy-four years old as of earlier this month, and he was born in nineteen forty-two. We talked on Saturday morning. Yeah, and end at, there, buddy. At, there we go. And at no point in his life does he remember watching the Cubs clinch a pennant. He was three when they last That's clinched amazing. the pennant. Yeah, and and of course in those games, those games went like an hour and a half or two hours too, so you wouldn't have to sit through all the <laughs> baseball was much quicker to watch back in the day. But I just. Um, I tend, we had this conversation on our radio show today. What makes you well up or what gets you to cry or gets you to feel emotional as an adult watching sports? And nostalgic things like KG returning to the Wolves and putting on a show or um, Cubs clinching first pennant since 1945, things that you didn't see coming and that that create this crescendo to uh, a peak moment of energy or emotion. Derek Jeter's final at bat walk off single to right field. Kobe Bryant going crazy in the second half and yeah. dropping the mic, going for 60 points yeah. as you know, Utah jazz, kind of a lame game, but um, stuff like that. I don't know. I can't, it's not tears of joy or tears of sadness. It's just, it's like I well up sometimes because emotional overload and sports, and this is why we watch for decades, and it's all coming out through my eyes so, in liquid form right now. <laughs> and I'm cutting <laughs> six onions. Yeah, um, exactly. The KG point, I think it's okay to admit it. Did you cry for the Jiggly Man? Oh, the 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 fat guy who yeah. stands <laughs> yeah, in the, the aisle does the little dance for KG. Uh, that was tears of sadness yeah. of like, why are they oh, soiling man. on this? KG moment brought his kid yeah uh, <laughs> uh look I'm just a different person I, for me I and I heard you guys have this conversation I was driving in from Bloomington and you know there was a lot of um a lot of valid points a lot especially I thought especially Judd no offense especially Judd a guy you don't see a lot of emotion from all the time he's kind of more just like you know uh, you know, y- you picture Judd, and he's kind of like a blue collar, beer drinking, meat and potatoes, meat and potatoes, yeah. football sports fan. Um, he likes hockey, but he only likes original six hockey, like that kind of sports fan. I thought the way he was making his points really sort of humanized that otherwise gruff exterior of John Q. Sports fan for Judd Zulged. I guess it would be Judd Q. Sports fan, but. Even hearing him say that, I just didn't agree with anything. Like n- nothing really, you guys were saying was emotional for me. And what I'm saying here is that I'm dead inside. Well, it's you're dead inside, and I think because you were born in 1990, right? Sure. So 91, and, I, and it's not like I'm that much older. I was born in 1985. Yeah. So it's not like there's. It wasn't like those six years made all the difference. But um, whether it was the Cubs or whatever else it may be. I think when you when you find these moments of historical significance and maybe you've seen that team come close at various other points along the line of historical sure. significance, when they eventually pay it off, it's not shock because you knew the Cubs were going to be good this season and you knew that they were winning that game 5 to nothing. but I think it's seeing other people get emotional and other people think about yeah. their family members who 
uh, wanted to see the Cubs go to a World Series or win a World Series. I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time quantifying why it is that myself and other people feel emotional, not just about the Cubs going to the World Series, but other major sports feats, like Vin Scully retiring. I welled up when I saw Vin Scully sign off. Are they tears of sadness? I mean, not really. I'm not sad because he's gone. I'm just It's the moment. I think what it is, and I don't, I don't know if there's a word or a phrase to describe this, but I'm thinking about that guy has spent almost his entire life doing this one thing really, really well and touching the lives of generations of people. And he's no longer going to be doing that thing. And it makes me feel emotional. And I don't know how to quantify it. And it's kind of scary inside, actually. It's scary inside. But I'm, but I'm comfortable as a grown adult male admitting yeah. that. And I'm fine with that. But it's, it's like there's a lot of sports movies that I'll, I'll have the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And I'll start to get welled up and teary-eyed. But I don't feel that way maybe watching a chick flick. Hmm. It's weird because I think women watch chick flicks and they start to cry and get emotional. But if they watch Hoosiers or something... Or uh, remember the Titans, they're just like, yeah, whatever, they're playing football. But if I see that speech on the sidelines telling the Titans, I want you to blitz all night, I mean, I start to well up. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it is, and I don't know what my grand point is, but there's various things when it comes to sports and our attachment to sports that get you, even as a grown adult male, feeling like you did maybe when you were eight years old or something. I think it's nostalgia that gets us feeling this way. Top three sports movies for you in terms of emotion, not in terms of quality of the film, not in terms of stand the test of time, Yeah. in terms of, okay, I got no shot at getting through that whole thing without crying. Uh, Major League, which you haven't seen, which is amazing because you're doing a a baseball podcast for going on two years now, uh, and you're a baseball lifer guy. Major League, not to spoil the ending, but uh, the the end of Major League 1 would be in that top three. Remember the Titans is up there. You have racial tension. Mm-hmm. You've it's uh, not really an underdog story as much, but the, the good storylines and a couple moments where you feel like. And then, off the top of my head, I would say Rudy. Okay. As a Notre Dame guy, uh, growing up, big Notre Dame fan, and then underdog story and little engine that could all that BS. But if you were to flip it around and say, okay, now name uh, like the top three chick flicks that get you emotional, I'd be like, um. I like chick flicks, but yeah. I'm not crying at the end of, you know, the Notebook. Really, okay. Hmm. Maybe I did. I don't. I don't think. Yeah, so. <laughs> I think that's revisionist history. <laughs> I think Who knows? You, I think you believe what you want to believe yeah. sometimes, Mackie. <laughs> uh, how about Miracle though? I heard you guys talking about that. That's, yeah, uh, to me, that's, that's the best sports movie that I've ever seen. And now, obviously, that's a limited sample. We're not talking about a very big pool here. Super unrealistic sports movie, though. I'm not sure. Like, that could never happen. Yeah, it wouldn't happen in real life. I need my sports movies to be more realistic. (laughs) They wouldn't have beaten the Russians. Like, no one's beating the Russians in hockey in the early 1980s. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right, well, you make a fair point. (laughs) Now, Rookie of the Year, where the kid breaks his arm and comes back with a 99-mile-an-hour fastball and pitches for the Cubs. That's realistic. I've been right saying there. for a long time that the next market inefficiency is bionic arms in baseball. <laughs> if they could just recreate the rookie, yeah, or what was it, rookie of the year? Rookie of the, the rookie year, was yeah. Dennis Quaid. Yes, now there's another one. How about Dennis you're Quaid? You're not crying at the rookie, are you? Only, only one scene where he gets called up and then calls his wife and gives her the news that he's now a major he league pitcher. He can't speak, basically. Yeah, yeah. How, do you, how do you not avoid chills up and down your body for that one? So, mm-hmm. but, the, but the Cubs, this is... In some ways, it's a bit of a movie script, but it it doesn't have the dramatic. If they had if they had gone to a game seven of the NLCS and 
maybe they were down. Maybe the the game that happened was it the Giants that blew that massive lead and the yeah. Cubs came back mm-hmm. in whatever game that was. If that had happened in the clincher, it would have felt a little bit more Hollywood and uh, probably would have taken the emotions over the top. Well, let me ask you then: if this is a movie, how does it end? Are the Cubs winning the World Series this year? Um. Impossible to say in baseball without just guessing because seven games are a crapshoot when well, you're, you're dealing the with teams. You're the director. Go ahead. Uh, if I'm the director, honestly, I think I might wait on delivering really? a Cubs World Series. <laughs> I think okay, if okay. I'm the director, I think I give them the joy of winning their first pennant since 1945. There's this citywide party. Everyone yeah. singing Go Cubs Go, hugging and kissing their but neighbor. I pay it off for the Indians who've been waiting since really? 1948, is it, for their last World Series championship? And then I might make the Cubs have to go through some more adversity in 2017 to wow. pay off the 108 years. But people celebrated like it was the 108-year right. drought that was taken off the board. If that's what the 71-year drought celebration looks like in Chicago, and some of the players were even like, like Ben Zobrist came out on the record a couple days ago, and he said, I mean, I it's great and all, but I'm a little surprised at how excited people were. I right. signed up to snap 108, not to snap right. 71. Little thing that just popped into my mind, and this is, I hope this doesn't offend a wide swath of our audience, but it it probably will. I'm that kind of person. Judd, I'm going to go after him directly for two, what I view, um, two opinions that are at odds with each other. They're sort of conflicting views of the world. He was very much in the camp that the Cubs have done it. This, he asked, I was on your guys' radio show this morning, and he asked me, if the Cubs lose the World Series, is this season still a success? And he said resoundingly, yes. This is a success. And I agree with him. But here's where it gets conflicting, because he's the one that also bashes the participation medals generation. The, oh, you get a trophy for showing up nowadays. Nobody cares about winning anything. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth there. If you think that the Cubs have already won by just getting to the World Series— that's a participation trophy. You you shouldn't get a medal for second place. No, but they're not. But here's but they they it is a win for them more than any other team in history to just get to the World Series because right. it's been longer for them no, than basically any other team in history. So for them to get to the World Series, the Yankees have been there what thirty times or something ridiculous since the Cubs. The last time the Cubs went, or like twenty five times. Hmm. Well, they've won twenty eight or twenty seven, however many World Series the Yankees have won uh, in their history. So. Just to get there is a much bigger accomplishment for the Cubs, even though they were favored to get there and they have the best record in the National League. To your question of will they will they win the World Series, whether I'm a director or not, like will they actually win the World Series, I think they win the World Series maybe six or seven times out of ten, which is a pretty good shot if you're... Uh, and actually Vegas is giving them a two-to-one shot, so six, six times out of ten or seven times out of ten would be the accurate uh, projection. But it is baseball, mm-hmm. and if they fall behind in the series, there's still that creeping death pressure that they have on their backs that other teams might not have. The Indians are coming in, and for the fir- and the only matchup they could ever concoct that they wouldn't feel as much pressure as their opponent to snap a streak. So it's it's right. a very unique circumstance for the Indians. I mean, I think this goes back to me being a cold, calculating robot, but I think that most of the Cubs players don't feel that pressure that we've been talking about for three weeks I think most of them I think it was Chris Bryant who said in the post-game interview after clinching the pennant but he said maybe it was for Ducci down on the field and said Chris you know 108 years 
what does this mean to you? Are you worried about the curse of the billy goat? Chris just laughed, and he's like, I get it. You guys have to talk about this, and it's an important thing to the outside world. But, like, dude, we're all too young. We're all too young to care about the pressure that you guys are ascribing to us. And I think that's the perfect way to summarize how most people in that clubhouse probably feel. A lot of them are probably too young to even to even dive into the Steve Bartman uh, controversy, right? I mean, that was in 2003. 2003? 13 years ago. I was 12. Right. And Chris Chris Bryant's younger than I am. What's he, 22, 23? I think he's like 23. 23 or 24, So Chris Bryant was like 10 years old when Steve Bartman He knows who Steve Bartman is, of course. But it's not like that ruined his universe. It's, I mean, I I think of, uh, now maybe this makes me sound bad and- you just mentioned you're only a few years older than me, but like I think of Moise Salou, and I think of him as an old player. Like Moise Salou is a like long since gone MLB player, and that's not yeah, true. And it's weird because for me, I th- I think of him as the the glory years of me falling in love with baseball. So from so the a- like the mid early, like ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, and then all the way through, let's say. Uh, my college years, where I really like that chunk of time yeah. for ten or twelve years, I really fell in love with baseball. And Moise Salou is one of the main players. I mean, like one of the main thirty players or whatever in that collection. Pedro Martinez was in that collection. Yeah. Sammy Sosa was in that collection. But um, yeah, I mean, I, it's it's Moise Salou has since admitted, by the way, that his overreaction in left field after Bartman reached over. And you could you could debate back and forth with Alu actually have had a chance to catch that ball, and I think it's 50-50. He was up there, and he was close, but, I mean, he's not a very athletic guy, and that ball was inside the railing, and that railing is really high up. If he hadn't reacted, and he's on the record saying this too, if he hadn't reacted the way that he did, Bartman never would have had the vitriol because fans were taking their cue from... Yeah. from it wasn't like in the moment fans were super mad, like, whoa, you're reaching out. They looked at Alu, who slammed his glove, yelled at Bartman, and then all of the fans in that section right. turned toward Bartman. And uh, whether it was Dan Schulman on the radio play-by-play or Tom Brenneman on the national Fox feed in 2003, those guys took a cue, too, from Moise Salu's reaction. Salu is and then turned their Yeah, turned their direction toward a fan reached over the railing. So it's all, you know, it's... it's here, the question we we posed on our radio show that I think we could dive into a little bit here on okay. the podcast just for fun is if Steve Bartman gets a phone call from the Cubs, if you're Steve Bartman, and they call you and they say, we want to welcome you back for a World Series game. Hey, we finally got over that hump. We're in the World Series, and we feel so bad. We want to welcome you back to Wrigley Field to throw out the first pitch for game three. What would you need or what would you say if you were Steve Bartman and somebody from the Cubs, maybe it's Theo even, who picks up the phone on behalf of the Cubs and calls you? What would you need or what would you say when they offered you a chance to come back? Hey guys, this is Justin Musil, pro baseball scout. And Phil Mackey, pro radio guy. And we have the best baseball storytelling podcast on the market. That's right. It's not us telling the stories. It's Aaron Boone on coming from a baseball family and hitting one of the most famous home runs in the country. Jim Brower telling Barry Bond stories. Find Hardball Society on iTunes, Podcast One, 1500ESPN.com, or HardballSociety.com. That's a lot of places. Yeah. What would you need or what would you say if you were Steve Bartman and somebody from the Cubs, maybe it's Theo even who picks up the phone on behalf of the Cubs and calls you, what would you need or what would you say when they offered you a chance to come back? You guys asked me this on the radio and I spent more time thinking about it. I would say thank you for thinking of me. Click. 
and I would hang up the phone. Because if I'm Steve Bartman, and you and your fan base have more or less, I would argue, not ruined my life. I can still lead a decent, normal life, but like, not normal. I can still lead a decent life, but like, definitely put me through hell for a decade. I don't want your pity. I don't want your shallow, hollow, disingenuous apology so that you can exercise these demons that you created. If I'm Steve Bartman, I want no part of the national spotlight, no part of the attention that would come with it. And I would tell the Cubs to stuff off and go take a hike. You guys talked about like what dollar amount would it take? How much would it take for yeah, you to? It's a cash grab for me. I, I mean, wouldn't take it. I say nothing. Here's that... why. You guys to start talking about a hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars. In fact, what was the show? Why don't you share this? Oh yeah, so, collar from your show. So someone, yeah, actually a, a listener to our radio show sent us this tweet today that he was a copywriter for uh, was it the H and it was H and R block ad. Well, he was a copywriter for I'm assuming a Twin Cities based agency that uh, created advertisements for H and R block. And they were working on a Super Bowl ad in 2004. So this would have been just a few months after the uh, Steve Bartman play. And it was like Willie Nelson, H&R Block. I can't remember what the theme was. And they offered Steve Bartman $200,000 to make an appearance in this H&R Block Super Bowl commercial. And he turned it down. Yeah. That's Im- awesome. Immediately afterwards. It was, the ad was something about you know like regrets or things I wish I hadn't done. So starring Willie Nelson, and they yeah. wanted Bartman to be a part. And he said no to $200,000. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I, and I, I don't know how much money Steve Bartman makes. I, I can't imagine that he's... I can't imagine that he's dirt poor if he's sitting in those seats in 2003 for a huge yeah, but it was playoff a, game at Wrigley Field. It was a Field. late model Walkman, though. It's not like he's exactly rolling Was that really it, that I'm old sure. of a Walkman in 2003? Sure. <laughs> but, okay, so here's what I was thinking. And you and Judd and your producer, Dave Harrigan, basically all agreed on this that, oh, I, I want the money. I'm auctioning the Walkman. I'll sign it. I recommended getting Moise Salou to sign that bad boy. And yeah, jack the value up. At least a million dollars in an open auction. You guys had a price. You guys could all be bought. And I think that says something about you. Here's what I would want oh, if I, I was Bart. I'm not denying that. Right. <laughs> neither is Judd and neither is Dave. There's a price on that. And here's here are the two roads that you can take. This is the fork in the road. If the Cubs offered you a half a million dollars and a personalized jersey and a suite for life to come throw out the first pitch in front of Game 3 Wrigley crowd. You take the check and you take the 15 minutes of fame that comes with it. Even if you do zero interviews, you're part of the story now. You're part of the story. And it seems to me, from everything that's happened since that fateful night, Bartman wants no part of being the story. So here are you, here's your fork in the road. You take the money, you throw out the first pitch, and you become a rich guy who's a part of the history books. Whether the Cubs win, lose, it doesn't matter. If they lose, you're probably going to get blamed. If they win, it's, oh, it's a cute story, and oh, wasn't that fun? Bartman came back, and water under the bridge, no hard feelings about that NLCS years ago. But the other direction you can go at that fork in the path, you're either a rich man who's in the history books, or you're a legend who didn't need the money. You turned down the thing that 99.9% of people would have accepted. There's a price to be paid. There's, yeah, it's part of history, but it's a complicated history. You remove all complication and any doubt that you are a legend if you turn that down because then you are Steve Bartman who did something that no, eh, most other Americans probably wouldn't do. Uh, yeah, I 
I wonder what do he, you want to be a legend or do you want to be rich? Well, if they, let's say they let's say they were to bring him back or try to bring him back for one of these World Series games, imagine and you're you've alluded to this if you lose the game right. and then lose the series and now it's over for you. It, the whole thing backfires because the whole point was to bring you in and say, "Hey, yeah. no longer curse, but what if you're the kryptonite or you're deemed as the kryptonite?" And they go on to get swept because uh, the Indians because were just baseball. hotter in baseball, and uh, and now you 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 came back to throw out the first pitch, and now you're associated with not only the 2003 NLCS but the 2016 World Series. Six figure book deal. I would just love to see what he looks like now, and I've I hope that he's been working out for 13 years. I hope that he's jacked up, barbed wire tattoos. I hope he looks like Conor McGregor now. And he's been he's been fighting in these underground mixed martial arts rings. <laughs> he's now he's got a mohawk. He's got tattoos up and down his. He's retired chest. now, so he's got time on his hands. <laughs> Connor? Yeah. And Connor walk away? No, he didn't walk away. Dude, he's fought like twice since he threatened to retire. Yeah, oh. you got to follow UFC closer. Oh man. Yeah, he already he already beat Nate Diaz in the rematch. Well, okay, so here. Just to circle back on on Bartman, I think that you have a unique opportunity here to eschew the kind of fame and you know BuzzFeed glory that everyone seems to aspire to these days, and just say, "No, nope, I don't need that. I don't need your stupid concocted, you know, fabricated spotlight. I don't need your hollow apology. You made my life a living hell, and I want nothing to do with you." He's still a Cubs fan, which is shocking to me. I would have booted my allegiance in a heartbeat after yeah. the, after everything that he put his family through for that. Man, this is a cool opportunity for him, though. Here's the other thing. It's a fun hypothetical. The Cubs ain't calling. <laughs> if you're Theo Epstein, you make sure that call does not go in on the off chance that one of your players <laughs> believes in the curse or believes in this superstitious lore. Eh, you don't want Bartman anywhere near that clubhouse. Let me take this Cubs and Steve Bartman in World Series conversation and localize it here with this question to you. And I'm kind of putting you on the spot because uh, I didn't I didn't announce this question to you before Uh-oh. we before we dove into this podcast. What is the absolute best case earliest you could see the Twins under whatever Derek Falvey's regime looks like getting to a World Series? Like well, like what what would be the earliest where you would say, you know, it wouldn't. I guess it wouldn't totally floor me if they made the World Series. If all goes right, they made the World Series in blank year. That's a really good question. I know. And yeah. Yeah, like, uh, Thank uh, you. I should not have patted you on the back. I'm going to delete that from the podcast. <laughs> I think. Um, in, let's just dig into a deeper philosophy before I like give just an answer. Is that my philosophy in baseball? used to be, and now I've changed it in the past couple of years. We've talked about this before, so this philosophy won't surprise you, Phil. I used to think, get there. Get to the postseason and you roll the dice. And sports is ruled by randomness. Sports is a collection of talent, hard work, preparation, and random chance. It's ran- random chance once you get to the postseason. Right, that's what I mean. Get there. It's not random chance that the Patriots went 16-0, and sure. but it's sort of random chance that the Giants beat them in one game. To me, it's random that— And they're that... deemed the champion of the league, exactly. right? Exactly. To me, it's random that David Tyree made that catch. You know? That's not something—it is 2007, I want to say. But, like, yeah. the, point, the point is that you can have the best laid plans. You can have the best athletes, the best team, the best coaching— the best preparation, and, like, sports is weird sometimes. Yeah, it's definitely not random that the Cubs had 103 wins Correct. or whatever in the regular season right. despite losing Kyle Schwarber and yep. losing a couple other guys. 
uh, but it might be random that they lose to someone in a seven-game series. Chris Long and I had an argument just after the postseason began, and I posted actually that we had a G-chat argument. We'd been This had been boiling over for a couple of days. Chris, you're an idiot. No, Wetmore, you're stupid. And it's all in good fun. We're good friends. And, and you're we both talking right. About this. We're, we're, I'm stupid and he's an idiot. So like, we, we <laughs> both nailed that part of the argument. But we talked about the one-game wildcard scenario, and he hates it, like with a burning passion. He hates the way the wildcard is set up, and I love it. I think it's fabricated drama. I think it's wonderful for the fans. I think it's great for every team to think – in the middle of August, man, we got a shot. We could, we could be that team. We could be the Colorado Rockies from however many years ago when they won like 20 or 22 to get yeah, in, I think that was won the wild card game, and then just went. I mean, they didn't win at all, so ultimately maybe it's for not. But the fact that you had a fun, awesome postseason ride for a team that you thought was dead in the water. I, that's why I love the wild card. I love the wild card for that reason. We argued back and forth about this, and he said, well, well, you go 162 games and you could lose in nine innings. That's dumb. I said, well, would you prefer to go 162 games and lose in 27 innings? And he said, yes, absolutely, because then I got a shot. No, dude, to me, a three-game series is random too. A seven-game series is random. You could play – I'm trying to think of what the like lowest number of games that I'd feel comfortable playing and saying, okay, the best team's probably going to win the World Series. It's not seven. It's not seven. It's not 11. It's – Maybe not. It's probably closer to like fifteen or more. Like if but there was a nineteen the twins game and the series, Indians, the Twins and the Indians played seventeen times, I believe, and the Twins went eight and nine against the Indians. I want to correct you. I might be wrong here, but in my head, they played nineteen times, and it was ten and nine in favor of the Twins. Or okay. no, the Twins went nine and ten in those games. Okay, yeah. Well, so, so okay, the Indians still win the World Series if it's a nineteen game World Series or whatever. But, but we like, have to bump it up to like twenty something. And the point is, is twenty five games. But. <laughs> And then you're like, okay, even 25 games, you can get hot. So what are you trying to decide here? Are you trying to decide who the absolute best team is? No. You're trying to have fun and an entertaining sports product that is must-see TV. This World Series will be that. Are you trying to say if we reduce, to answer my question from like five minutes ago, if we reduce the season to 25 games, the Twins can win the World Series next year? Next year. So what's the soonest they can win the World Series? Okay, I'll circle back on that and say, my my philosophy used to be just get there and then you got a chance. That's not my philosophy really anymore. Now my philosophy is get there, have at least one ace, preferably three, have a great bullpen and a manager who's willing to win, to sell out to win one game. Because you saw what Tito did in the CS and even in the division yeah. series against the Red Sox. Well, Twins have zero aces. Right. They <laughs> well, have okay. one of the worst bullpens in baseball. Okay, so not a great start, no. So how long will it take them? Because I'm with you on this I'm one. I'm questioning to see... Molitor, if he were in the same situation, would he use Andrew Miller in the fifth inning? I don't know. No, I'm not I, sure. Certainly not. In a winner-take-all game, I don't really see him being that kind of manager. Now, maybe maybe this postseason opens up every manager's eyes and says, all right, 162-game season, yeah. i got to manage my bullpen to live for tomorrow. In the postseason, I need to win tonight at all costs. So that's all I'm saying is that I've uh, I've evolved my theory from just get there and roll the dice, in which case – my answer to your question probably would have been 2018. The Twins could be a wild card team and just mess around in October, have some fun, and if pop you, some champagne. If Barrios becomes your ace by 2018, and you either make a trade for or find somewhere within, maybe you get lucky with a Trevor May or somebody, and he becomes your lights-out firefighter who strikes out a ton of batters. Maybe he's not Andrew Miller, but he becomes something like that. And you have two or three other—you got to find two or three other bullpen guys. 
Um, I mean, it, it's a, it, it's going to take a long time to find all these pieces. You're not going to find them by 2017. But I would say 2018 or 19, if everything goes right and you sneak in as a wild card team or uh, Buxton figures it out to the point where he's a superstar and gets you maybe an extra seven or eight wins in the regular season, now you win a division or something. It's not that unfeasible. The Cubs went from 100 losses to best team in baseball in two years yeah. with a bubbling farm system, but right. also maybe the smartest front office in the game and a ton of resources to get a John Lester right. to go, uh, you know, get a, a Jason Hayward came along after that uh, two-year stretch I'm talking about, but you get my point. Get super lucky with a Jake Arrieta, you know, the Pedro Strope Jake Arrieta trade. Nobody was saying, all right, now... World Series time, baby, and Jake Arrieta becomes one of the best pitchers in baseball. Well, Hendricks, too. Yes. Hendricks was was filthy lights out in the NLCS, and they wind up getting him for Ryan Dempster in a a deadline deal or something. You know what I mean? Like Weird things happen in sports, and I'm not—that's by no means to discredit what the Cubs have done. What the Cubs have done is fascinating and uh, probably— not able to be copied by the Twins. If you're the Twins, you can't really look at that blueprint and say, all right, that's the model. That's how we do this. They can just do some things that the Twins aren't going to be able to do in the short term, I should say. And even if you look at the way the Indians pitching staff was constructed, your Corey Kluber, your Danny Salazar, your Carlos Carrasco, their bullpen, you know, Andrew Miller was a deadline deal. (laughs) That's not a quick fix either. The the way that Falvey et al. were able to construct that pitching program in Cleveland is not a short-term solution. So now with my new philosophy of get to the postseason, have at least one ace, preferably three, have a lights-out bullpen, and manage to win today, 2020? I mean, because then you're getting your young players. I mean, if things work out well. Miguel Sano, Byron Buxton are both at least a five-win player apiece. Um, you, you know, your Eddie Rosario's figure it out. You find a spot for Jorge Polanco. Brian Dozier's at the tail end of his Twins contract, and he's getting into his early to mid-30s. It's, it's all about the pitching, and the pitching is a huge yeah. unknown right now. The Twins, you couldn't tell me. Even even our good friends, you know, Seth Stowes, Jeremy Nygaard, these people that do the Twins prospect handbook, Cody Christie, you can't tell me confidently the 13 pitchers who will be on the Twins in 2020. I love you guys. You do great work. I promise you, you're not telling me the 13 guys that are pitching for the Twins in 2020 until we know that, until we know how quickly the pitching staff turns around, both starting staff and bullpen, know what pieces are in place there. Can we even really start to project how good that lineup can be? Because I think they'll still have no problem scoring runs in the near-term future. It's the preventing runs that is going to be a huge, huge question mark for this team going yeah, forward. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Cubs and, and Indians, Derek Falvey hasn't even really gotten his hands on the organization right. much yet. Really, he's I'm sure he's been in communication with people, but uh, this it's going to leak into November, and the winter meetings are going to be a month away, and your, your uh, chief baseball officer has yeah. not even begun to... Let's put it this way. Spring training begins the second week in February. So we're like th- we're about three months away from spring training, or three months away from guys going down and starting to work out on their own. And the new CBO hasn't even really begun to implement his blueprint. So good luck turning much of this around by 2017. I'll say what I said about the Timberwolves at the time. They got a new boss in here. I say year one is year zero. You're just 
you're getting a lay of the land. If you're Derek Fallaby, and we've talked about this a lot before, I won't belabor the point, you're getting in and learning about the organization. You're getting in and figuring out what pieces you have in place, who's a winning player, not only player on the field, but who's a winning player in the front office, and who could you maybe replace and find value. I'm not providing suggestions. I'm just saying that's probably what you're going to try to figure out in year one. In that sense, it's not really year one. And go ahead and call this a rebuild, by the way. I've seen people tiptoeing around the word. Stop. It's 103 losses. You need to rebuild. Yeah, when you don't have any pitching, and the, and the Twins would take issue and say, well, we've got this, this, and this, and stop. You have the worst pitching in baseball. and For six years. And, and you're, So whether it's rebuilding or building, like you're, build, you're building yeah. a pitching staff. Yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> like we're calling it erecting a, a, a winner. You're not actually like reconstructing anything because when's the last time you were – that relevant 2010 who's left over from that team my 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 big point on this being sort of year zero of a rebuild i don't think a rebuild needs to be a five-year plan i think you can get you you have to get a little bit lucky you have to have some breaks but a rebuild could be a three-year process you could get to the point where you feel like you have you know star players at several different positions you fill that in with acquisitions, whether it's trade, whether it's minor leaguers coming up and maybe exceeding expectations, or whether it's signing a free agent, which you'll have some money to do. I don't see that as being an unrealistic timeline, you know, a three-year kind of a rebuild. But the biggest, biggest question is going to be the question on basically every MLB team's mind. Okay, nice. So the, the Indians did this with really only one ace still standing and a great bullpen in Andrew Miller. But the Indians... The Indians won their 90 games with more than just the one ace. And that's what exactly, people, yeah. people have to keep in mind when you watch the Indians right now. Oh, they only have one really good pitcher and they're patchworking the rest. Sure. Well, fair point. When you can rest every couple of days and you don't have to go to a five man rotation. So it minimizes the, uh, you know, the impact of losing all those starters. But to get to the 90 wins required to get to the playoffs, yeah. you need a better staff. If, if you took this Indians team right now, and you started them at the beginning of the year without Carrasco and without Danny Salazar. Probably they not would not make the playoffs. Yeah, not a postseason. They would team. not. But if, but if you get there, that's why baseball. You build for the regular season, and then you sort of cross your fingers in some ways in the postseason. And, and you go get you... Andrew Miller at the trade deadline. Right, that <laughs> helps. Too, yeah. What? What's your answer? Like year? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying like Man. be a strong contender. I'm just saying like sports happen and weird things can happen. Yeah. Put yourself in a good Honestly, place and maybe you win it. I think a sharp front office can build a bullpen in one off season. I think you can build one of the best bullpens in baseball, a top 10 bullpen, in one offseason. Aroldis Chapman's a free agent. Well, you, whether it's signing a free agent or making a key trade or just identifying some starters who you can just have an honest conversation with a starter, which is what the Twins tried to do with Mike Pelfrey a couple of years ago and then injuries or the suspension to Urban Santana. That's right. Still very curious to see Mike Pelfrey as a reliever at some point, maybe even next year with the Tigers or whoever. But I think a good front office can build a bullpen overnight over one front office it's not easy but a good smart front office can do it from there can you get the necessary defense and pitching in the starting rotation to become competitive not in one off season no unless unless phil hughes goes back to his form from two years ago and Irvin santana continues to pitch the way he did last year and Barrios becomes an ace overnight. Barrios slashes nine runs off his head. Right. I mean, are these things all realistic in a vacuum? Like, is there a decent chance Phil Hughes becomes effective again? Sure, of course there is. Is there a decent chance Irvin Santana repeats his performance? Yeah, I mean, there's like a, I know, maybe a 40 to 50% chance of that. Is there a 30 to 50% chance Barrios becomes a really, really good number two starter? Yes. 
what's the percentage of all of those things happening? Well, this is the conversation we had about the Twins last year. Well, let's hope that Jepson has a career year. Let's yeah. hope that this, let's hope that that. A smart front office doesn't always go off of the best-case scenario for each player. In fact, a really smart coach or front office, this is the Bobby Knight negative thinking book, The Power of Negative Thinking. Prepare for bad things to happen so that when they do, you've still created a good enough game plan or roster or uh, or set of processes to weather those storms. That's the main thing I want to see this front office implement, that the old front office was bad at. And when they don't, when things don't go wrong, well, then good. You're in a better place for it. Um, then, then you're like a 100-win team, right? Sure. Uh, and that's what the Cubs showed. I will yeah. say, we've you've I've mentioned the name a couple of times. I haven't said this on the record, I don't think. But if I'm the new Twins front office, I'm done with Trevor May being a reliever. I like the idea of having an Andrew Miller, but I don't think he's an Andrew Miller. I don't think he's a Wade Davis. I don't think he's an Aroldis Chapman. I need more horses in the starting rotation. I think Trevor May can be one of those horses, a 200-inning horse. He was not a bad starting pitcher in his first stint. I mean, he had the horrible start against the A's, but they've never given him a shot in the starting rotation long term. Trevor May, to me, is a very underrated Twins pitcher. I don't think that a lot of Twins fans realize... I mean, like, he's got a lot of bad breaks, and I'm not just, I'm not trying to make excuses or anything like that. But I mean, with injuries, and there'd be like, you know, one bad start or his terrible start was it in Milwaukee just before the Twins went to Cincinnati a couple years ago, and then they yanked him to the bullpen just because, well, we can only have five guys in the rotation, and Irvin's about to come back. That was musical chairs. It was whoever pitches like crap next is your bad start. Exactly. Your bad start happened to come at the wrong time. So you're a reliever. They go to spring training under the facade that he's actually in the starting rotation competition, which, in my opinion, could not have been true based on the way he pitched and then the fact that he was still relegated to the bullpen. I think that I would make him a starting pitcher. So there's a start. I mean, maybe maybe then you've got four pitchers that you're talking about that, like, okay, individually I'm not saying, you know, each one's a slam dunk, and I'm not saying collectively it's a surefire rotation. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying you got four guys, at least you feel okay about their chances of becoming a legitimate big league starter. And then you figure out the fifth. Like every team, every season, you figure out your fifth starter. You know, throw a bunch of names in the hat, whether it's Tyler Duffy, Kyle Gibson, Tommy Malone, Hector Santiago, any of these guys, and you figure out how to go number five. Um, that, that to me is a start. I just wanted to say it on the record before we start having all our fun off-season conversations about yeah. off-season planning and how Which you we'll build do a, a roster. Ton of episodes on that stuff. Yeah, there, I'm really looking forward to that this off-season because it's no longer going to be okay. Here are the top five free agents at catcher. This is who I'd sign, and here's probably the guy Terry Ryan will go after. And you kind of have in your head, you're like, I know this is what would be the winning play. And I feel like this is a Terry Ryan signing. Like, you, and those are two different things. Like you knew Jason Marquis was. Going to put on a Twins uniform a few years ago. Mike Pelfrey getting extended. Kevin Correa. You knew that Kevin Correa was the guy, right? (laughs) Not anymore. And that's what's interesting. Maybe he still is. And maybe the Twins deem that they're not quite ready to contend, so they just need to fill out a roster. That'll be interesting. Who they sign this winter tells me exactly what this new front office, whoever's running it, uh, you know, when Falvey comes in and then whoever else is a decision maker— who they sign this winter or what trades they make. The tell, trades are going to be interesting. Tells me exactly not yeah. only what they think about the players in-house, but where they think about themselves collectively as an organization. So this, this to me, I think it goes without saying, but it's going to be a fascinating winner from the Minnesota Twins' perspective. Uh, I'm going to have a lot of fun with these podcasts. You're already uh, super. You're already knocking over the microphone. You're so excited. <laughs> I'm still nervous about the Facebook Live thing going awry. Um, I, 
I'm really looking forward to this winter from a you know, baseball cold calculating analyst's perspective because there will be a lot of really fascinating moves. And I'm curious to see how this postseason shapes the way the really good or borderline good teams start to think about constructing themselves. I think we've seen I'll, I'll, this is my final point on the podcast and because we should save a lot of this offseason stuff yeah, for no future question. episodes. And by the way, if you have suggestions and you're still listening to this podcast right now, which means you are a diehard fan of the Twins and or uh, the Touch Mall podcast, we, we thank you for that. You couldn't find the stop button or, or the, that or your jacked. Yeah, or your you're passed out right now and your phone is still going. <laughs> Um, send us suggestions on various off-season episode themes you'd like to see us dive into, and we will be happy to entertain some of those suggestions. But, yeah. um, and then I totally forgot the point I was about to You were going to make one grand point, and you're holding the microphone in your hand that suggests you're definitely about to drop it. So I thought maybe there was some like big booming point coming before you sign off on the World Series episode of the Touch Ball you know Podcast. I'll think of it for next episode, oh. and we'll get back to you <laughs> that's, then. That's, that's a tease. That's a radio pro.